0: but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Amen, let's pray. Lord God, we come week after week. Because we need you. We come week after week because we live in a crazy and chaotic world full of unknowns, full of tragedy, full of frustrations and temptations. And so, Lord, we come to rest in you this morning, Lord. God, we pray that through your Holy Spirit, you will again prove yourself faithful to apply your word to our hearts and to our lives that we might know and understand your plans for us, Lord, and we might rest in the goodness of your plans. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I admit I am a little bit biased and I am not that well-traveled, but I think we live in what might be the greatest country in the history of the world. Uh, My uh, Canadian sister sent me a text after last service showing me a list that tells me that I'm wrong, that we're in eighth place, but I think the list is wrong. Uh, We live in a country where really the sky is the limit for our children in terms of what they want to do. Uh, We live in a country with great medical services, maybe the best in the history of the world, We live in a country that is prosperous. I mean, most of us have indoor plumbing, and most of us have central heating. We live in a country where we have a strong defense, a great military force. Uh, We live in a country where hundreds, if not thousands of people a day seek to come and find refuge in because they are trying to escape their own country. Now, again, I may be a bit biased. I am, and I have not traveled a whole lot, but in my view... We live in what is one of the best countries in the history of the world. Not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, we all know that, but it certainly is a place of great blessing to live and to be in. You know, I grew up in the 1980s and growing up in the 1980s, um, you know, I just growing up as a child, I thought that, you know, the United States of America was just this indestructible force. And as I have grown a little bit older, and as I have learned a little bit more about history, what I have figured out is that we are made much more fragile uh, than I first thought. You know, you think of December 7th, 1941, when Pearl Harbor was attacked, and we were roped into World War II. And if it wasn't for the uh, atomic bomb, I mean, you could ask the question, what language would we be speaking today here in Green Bay, Wisconsin? You think of October 1962 with the Cuban Missile Crisis where you find out after the fact that we were so close to World War III that would have brought massive destruction. um, It makes you a little bit scared inside. You know over the past two weeks we've been remembering September 11th when on our own territory 3,000 people died and more than 6,000 were injured. Even this past week Iran, who who hates America, attacks Saudi Arabian oil fields. And we look at that, and we may say, that's over there, and, and we're protected from that, and something like that would never happen to us. But Peter Roberts, the director of military science, said, I don't think there's any country that could have defended any better than Saudi Arabia did, and that includes the United States. I think most of us live under this assumption that the United States of America is untouchable, that it is unbeatable, that it is invincible. But what is so fascinating is that for thousands of years, there are plenty of empires that thought the exact same thing that are now read about in history books. Even more than that, as we'll look today in the passage, we're told that the kingdom of America will not last forever. In today's passage, King Nebuchadnezzar is reminded of this thing, of the fragility of him and his kingdom. That his kingdom, like every other kingdom, has a shelf life. Some longer than others, but in the end, they all are destroyed. And the reason this is recorded in God's word for us, for God's people, is because when we grasp the reality of the temporariness of the kingdoms of this world, We can focus our hearts and our hope and our security in the joy of a kingdom that will last forever. If you would please open up to Daniel chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 23 through 39 today. It's page 738 in the red Bible that is located in the seat in front of you. If you do not own a Bible, that Bible is for you to keep. Also page 932 in the children's Bible. So we are now in our third week in the book of Daniel. In the first week we looked at Daniel chapter 1 and we were reminded that Daniel had been brought into Babylon. He had brought from exile out of Judah to Babylon because King Nebuchadnezzar came in with the Babylonian Empire and conquered Judah. And so Daniel and his friends are in exile in this foreign land with a foreign language, foreign gods and foreign values. And while he is there, he and his friends receive a three year education uh, in Babylonian literature and wisdom. And at at the end of it, King Nebuchadnezzar says of Daniel and his friends from Judah that they are ten times wiser than the most wise men of Babylon. As we move into chapter two, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. We don't find out anything about this dream at the beginning, but what happens is that King Nebuchadnezzar calls for his wise men to come and interpret the dream. Now, the normal pattern, if you remember, is that King Nebuchadnezzar would say, here's the dream I had. He would explain it in detail and they would tell him the interpretation of it. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar has grown skeptical and I would say rightfully so. And he says, you know what? Your interpretations haven't been so good in the past. So here's what I want. In order for me to trust your interpretation, I want you to tell me the dream that I had. I'm not going to tell it to you. You tell it to me. And so the wise men come back to him. And they say this in verse 10 through 10 and 11. They said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. In other words, what you're asking is ridiculous. We can't tell you what your dream was. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And then we read, Because of this the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Now again, if you remember, just catching us up to speed, Daniel and his friends were amongst the wise men of Babylon, and so there is a soldier that is sent to Daniel's door to arrest Daniel and to put him to death. And when the soldier arrives, Daniel responds prudently. Do you remember? And he asks him, he says, why? What's the hurry? Why is there no trial? Why are we being put to death? And the soldier explains uh, why the king is doing this. And so Daniel says, okay, uh, I want to make an appointment with the king. And so he goes to the king and he makes an appointment telling him, uh, you know, I want to tell you what your dream was and give you the interpretation of it. Now, Daniel does this without having any idea at this point in time what the dream is. And so the king agrees and they set an appointment for a future date. And Daniel goes back to his friends and he says, we need to pray. (laughs) We need to pray because uh, we need God to show me or show us what this dream is that the king had and the interpretation of it. And so God answers their prayer. He is faithful to them and Daniel explodes in praise. And the reason why Daniel explodes in praise in in, in one part is because God has answered this prayer and therefore saved the lives of Daniel, his companions, and the wise men of Babylon. But the greater reason for the praise is actually the message of the interpretation which we're studying today. That is what gets Daniel so excited. That's what gets Daniel worshiping and praising God. And so that's what we get to see today. And so we're going to look at the second half of chapter 2. And we're going to look at this dream of Nebuchadnezzar, which points us to the future. And as we look at it, one of the things that we'll discover is that God does not tell us everything we want to know about the future. But he does tell us everything we need to know about the future in order to rest our hope and security and joy in him. So here's the first thing that we know about the future that gives us comfort in the present. The first thing is that God knows the future. Again, just a reminder so Daniel is praising God because God has revealed the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar to him. And so we're picking up uh, near the end of Daniel's praise. Verse 23 says, To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we ask of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. That is the thing about his dream and the interpretation. Therefore Daniel went in to whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Ariach brought Daniel before the king in haste and said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king, the interpretation. Just pause there for a second. Notice how Ariok goes before the king, and he's trying to take credit for finding this guy, Daniel, right, to to earn brownie points with the king, when in fact, Daniel came to him. And the reason why I point that out is because Daniel's response to the king is the exact opposite of what Ariok did, as we read on. Verse 26, the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no, (laughs) no wise men, enchanter, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the vision of your head As you lay in bed are these. And so here is Daniel. Daniel could have said, yes, king, I will tell you about your dreams. I will tell you the translation of it. Daniel could have taken the credit. But Daniel wanted to make sure that the credit went where the credit was deserved. He credits God. He says, it is God who has shown this to me. No man could possibly know what's going on in your head, but God knows there is a God in heaven. He is alive. He is attentive, and he does know all things, and he knows what was going on in your head, and he knows the interpretation of it because he knows the future. Verse 29, to you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. The king was thinking about what's going to happen, you know, with me, with my kingdom, after my kingdom, things like that. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than any, more than all the living. Again, he's giving credit to God. But in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You know, there are two things we can take from these verses, and they're pretty simple to, 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 to draw out and to understand. One of those is that people does, people do not know the future, right? Uh, this is kind of the big point of this whole passage is that they don't know the, the minds of the king, the dream of the king, they don't know the future, they don't know the interpretation. People do not know the future. No matter what the horoscope says or the palm reader or the tarot card reader says, people do not know the future. Now, my seminary professor used to say, you know, even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? And so sometimes they get it right out of the blue, but people don't know the future. So that's the first thing that we find out is that people do not know the future. The second thing we find out is that God does know the future, and furthermore, whatever God wants us to know about the future, God reveals to us. You see, we are on a need-to-know basis. God doesn't, again, said God doesn't tell us everything we want to know, but he does tell us what we need to know. There are many Christians who spend a lot of time trying to decode the Bible. They turn it into this huge mystery puzzle, as if God was trying to communicate All these details in a very mysterious way. And so they'll put together these complex equations to say this is going to happen here and there and then and this is how and things like this. But what we need to know about the future, God has made plain to us. Alistair Begg, a, a preacher many of you may know about, he says often, he says, The main thing is the plain thing and the plain thing is the main thing. Talking about a passage of scripture. You know, we do not know all the details about the future, but God does, and he shows to us the main things so that they can become the plain things so that they can be the things about the future that we rest in today. Uh, Pastor David Platt, I went to a conference several, boy, I think it was last year, and Pastor David Platt was telling a story, and I'm not sure if I've all the Details correct, but close enough. Um, he was in seminary and they were given a, an assignment to go and do some street side evangelism. And so they went down to the French quarters down in New Orleans and they went amongst all the other booths where people were reading folks' palms and they were telling fortunes and reading cards and things like that. And, and he and his seminary friends, they set up a booth right next to them. And they put up this big sign that said, will tell you your future for free, okay? And so uh, these customers came up and he would share the good news of Jesus with them and he would hear what their response was and based on their response on whether they accepted Christ or rejected Christ, he was able to tell them what their future was from scripture, He was saying, listen, if you reject Christ, what Scripture tells us is that you will be going to the lake of fire. But if you accept Christ, you will be in Christ's wonderful kingdom for all eternity. You see, the main thing is the plain thing, and the plain thing is the main thing. He's saying this is what God has told us clearly in Scripture. This is what we want to major in. God alone knows the future. And while he does not reveal everything we want to know, He reveals the most wonderful, most beautiful, most glorious things that we need to know about the future. And so what comfort do we have? Well, one, God knows the future, but secondly, God controls the future. Daniel starts in verse 31 through 35 by by telling back the king the dream that he had, okay? And then in verse 36 through 45, Daniel will translate that dream. Now this is I'm gonna try to not make this too confusing, but in the dream, there are two major parts, okay? And in the translation that comes in the later half, there are two major parts. What I wanna do is just take the first part of that dream, the first major part, and then the interpretation of it, okay? So um, I'll cover it all, I promise, but that's kinda what I wanna do. So just look at verse 31 through 33 for now. Daniel's telling the, the emperor, the king, what his dream was. He says, You saw, O king, And behold, a great image, the image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So I did a little Google searching to see if anyone put together this image, and we do have uh, one right there. And so you can see the head of gold and then the silver chest and arms, the bronze belly and thighs, the iron legs, and iron clay uh, feet and toes. Head, shoulders, knees, and toes. But anyways, so uh, that's, that's, that's the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had, at least the first half of it. We'll read the second half later. Now for the translation of what this, what this thing means. Okay, look at verse 36 with me. It says, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the mighty and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beast of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. All right, so let's just pause there. So basically, King Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the entire world. Okay? And he had a kingdom and a dominion that far surpassed any other king. And what Daniel is saying here is there is many of the, of the children of man, which is all of us who are under your dominion as well as creatures and creation. Your, your, your kingdom extends far. You are the king of all other earthly kings. You are the, the magnum opus king of these earthly kings. And your kingdom is as well. Now, why, why did he have such success? Was it because he was... Clever? Was it because he was ruthless? Was it because he was intelligent? Probably all of those were part of it, but that's not the ultimate reason why King Nebuchadnezzar was so successful. And this is very important. I don't know if you saw in the verses that we just read, but we are told what was the ultimate reason for King Nebuchadnezzar's success. And this is vitally important for our understanding of God and history and the future. Look at verse 37 with me. He says, You, O King, the King of Kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory. It is God who has given this to King Nebuchadnezzar. He continues, and into whose hands he, that is the Lord God, has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. And so what we learn in these verses is that God is not only aware of history, God controls history. God raises up kings and he brings down kings. God doesn't just know history. He controls history. And this is quite a testimony coming from Daniel. I mean remember Daniel had just been stolen away from everything he had known could you imagine in your place of Daniel if you were taken away from your family from your friends from your neighborhood that you grew up in if you're taken away from all of those things and put in a foreign country with a foreign land with foreign gods how horrible that would be and yet Daniel says this happens because God has given this to King Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation continues Verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall ri- arise after you. That's symbolized by the silver chest and arms up there. And yet a third kingdom, of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. Verse 41, and as you saw the feet and toes... Partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be, shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix With clay. So, what we know from this dream, from this image that King Nebuchadnezzar had, what we know for sure because Daniel is very explicit is that the head of gold refers to King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. Now, most commentators agree that the silver chest and arms refers to the Persian empire that, that, that took over the Babylonian empire, that the bronze belly and thighs refers to the Greco-Macedonian empire and Alexander the Great. The iron legs refers to the Roman empire, which was, uh, was reigning during the times of Jesus. There's some disagreement on the iron clay feet and toes. Some of those think that also refers to the Roman empire. Others believe it refers to empires uh, of current day. But as you look at this, what what we're finding out is that God knows the future. God controls the future. He brings kings up. He puts kings down. And the reason we know this is because the accuracy with which Daniel gives this prediction, this prophecy, this interpretation of the dream. You know, it's interesting because liberal theologians will actually date Daniel much later, like 400 years later, because of the interpretations of this dream, saying this is so accurate, it is so precise of the history that unfolds from here that Daniel could not have written it before it actually happened. But what they fail to believe is that there is a God who knows all things and controls all things. A God who says, I can tell you what will happen. It will be sure because I will make sure that it is accomplished in this way. You know, it's hard to illustrate the point that, that God who knows all things controls all things because None of us are God, but let me try to illustrate it this way. I don't know if I've ever been on a guided tour. I'm pretty cheap, so I don't pay for those things. But when I go up to Door County, um, you know, I see those red Door County trolleys just like driving around, right? Right. And, uh, or at least I see advertisements when I go up there and I'm assuming what happens is there's a guy or a gal who's driving that bus around and they have, you know, a microphone and they're saying, you know, up next on your left, we will have blah, 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 blah. Right. And in five miles, we will be going into Egg Harbor where you'll see there's a nice downtown and things like that. And so they can tell you what the future is. And the reason why they can tell you the future is because in some way they control the future because they're driving the bus, right? When it comes to history of the world, God is holding the steering wheel. God controls the future, and so he can tell us the future. He orchestrates the future and plans out the future. This does not mean that we're robots. It does not mean we are not responsible for what we do. It does not mean we should not be courageous and fight for the things that God has given to us. But what it does mean, and this is good news, is we cannot screw up God's plan. We cannot rob ourselves of the glory of the salvation that God has promised to us and to his people. God knows all things and controls all things. Now, on to the most important part of the dream and the most important part of the interpretation. Look at verse 34 with me. He says, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces. And I love the imagery of this. And became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. I think Daniel's primary reason for praise earlier in Daniel chapter 2 is not because God just saved his neck from King Nebuchadnezzar. I think it's because of this stone that is prophesied about here. That was in the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. You see, we find out several things about this stone in these verses. First off, we see that this is a stone that is not cut by human hands, meaning that man didn't make it up, man didn't, man didn't uh, uh, create it, that it comes from divine origins, whatever this stone thing is. We also learn that this stone destroys the whole statues, all of the kingdoms, the empires represented in this statue. It, it destroys the Babylonians, the Persians, the Romans, and, and really all kingdoms that come after it. They become, as he kind of says, like dust in the wind. There goes your empire. The third thing about this stone that we find out is that this stone grows, okay? The end of verse 35, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is no ordinary stone. Stones don't grow like this, but this stone grew to fill all of creation. And it does so, as we will find out, because this stone, stone, whatever this stone is, is the cornerstone of God's kingdom. A kingdom that will fill all of creation. A kingdom that will not be destroyed and will live triumphantly forever and for always. So now let's look at the interpretation of this stone and of this kingdom. Look at verse 44 and 45 with me. It says, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. So what? what is this stone? What is this Stone that is not created by human hands? What is this stone that shatters all the kingdoms of the world? What is this stone that grows and consumes everything? What is this stone on which is established the kingdom of God? What is this stone? Or better yet, who is this stone? In the New Testament, Jesus says in Luke 20, he says the stone, talking about himself, that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone of what? The kingdom of God. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. First Peter 2. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him, not it, but him, will not be put to shame. So the honor is for those who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And finally, Ephesians chapter 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That is the foundation of the foundation in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so who is this stone that God speaks of in Daniel chapter 2? It is the Lord Jesus. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of Lord. He is the one to whom all of us will give account to. He is the one who is the foundation of God's people and God's kingdom. And I love how Daniel ends this. He says, in verse 45, then he says, A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. And then he says, The dream is certain because God is certain. And then it's interpretation, sure. Here's the thing because God knows the future, because God controls the future, he can promise that he will win the future. And we can be certain about this. God has sent this stone, stone, Jesus Christ, to be the cornerstone of this everlasting kingdom. And so let me ask, what do you do with this stone? You know, you either have to, either have to reject the stone to which the Bible claims that you will be crushed by the stone on Judgment Day. Or you have to build your life on this stone and rest on it for your hope and your salvation and your everlasting happiness in the kingdom of God. You either have to accept it or reject it, but you cannot be indifferent towards it because the stone is coming. What do you do with this stone? In our fragile and unpredictable world, we have this great comfort that God knows the future, that God controls the future, and so he can promise to us that he will win the future through this stone, Jesus Christ. Finally, God shadows the future. What I mean about this is that there are certain stories and certain people put in the Bible that God uses to whet our appetite of what is yet to come. You know, you think of a a beautiful big tree or a big skyscraper and it casts a shadow and you can see in some ways the glory of the thing that it's represented. But it's just black and white, right? But it points to a greater reality that is in color. In the same way you see beautiful things in the scripture that are shadows of what is to come in the kingdom of God. And I think personally, I think they're all over the book of Daniel, especially here at the end of Daniel chapter 2. So look with me, verse 46. Says then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. Can you imagine this? The king of kings, the most powerful man in the entire world, bows down. It says, with his face upon the ground, fell upon his face to pay homage to his slave. Okay? Verse 47. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. The king was now believing the word that Daniel had been proclaiming about God and the kingdom of God. Verse 48 Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief perfecter over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel is exalted to this place of prominence where he is ruling and reigning all over this kingdom. And then verse 49, Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. And so as a result of Daniel being exalted to this place of providence, prominence, of ruling and reigning all over this kingdom, he takes his people with them so that they too can rule over this kingdom. Friends, I think a lot of things in the book of Daniel, and especially here, are shadows of what are to come. You know, you know Daniel risks his life to tell King Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of the dream, he risked his life so that others would be saved. But the greater Daniel, Jesus Christ, as we talked about, didn't come just to risk his life, but to give his life. That our next might be saved. And when this greater Daniel, Jesus Christ, comes, he too would proclaim the word of God and the kingdom of God. And at the cross, he would take on the justice of God for our sin. But then on the third day, he rose again. He is exalted by the Father. And he ascends up into heaven where he is ruling and reigning today. And he gathers his people to come and to rule and to reign with him. We see images of this in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 2. It's a bit longer passage. But verse 5 through 11 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, "...did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, a slave like Daniel." Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. He's exalted so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Do you know who is included in every knee? Every knee. King Nebuchadnezzar, Joseph Stalin. Every American president, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then one more, 2 Timothy 2. It says, the saying is trustworthy for if we have died with Christ, we will also live with Christ. If we endure, we also reign with Christ. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? I'm not sure. We will reign with Christ. In his exaltation, we are exalted with him and we are given this duty to reign over the kingdom of God with Christ. Christ has come to begin his kingdom. He will come again to finish his kingdom. Let me end with this. Corrie Ten Boom, um, many of you may be familiar with her, but she was a Dutch watchmaker who lived from 1892 to 1983, and she worked with her father and her sister and other family members to hide Jews during the Holocaust. Uh, they would hide them away so that the Nazis couldn't get to them and kill them. Well, they were uh, they were ratted on. They were caught and they were sent to concentration camps. And they were in horrific conditions where they just they just grew into basically skeletons. And the conditions were so bad that. That later she would lose her sister there. She would die because of the horrific conditions. But while they were there, Corey and her sister held worship services with a Bible that they had smuggled in. And even as as her sister was approaching death, she said she said to Corey, she said, "There is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still." And so her sister passed away 15 days later. Uh, Corey is released on what we later find out is a clerical error, um, and everyone else who was a part of her group actually gets the gas chamber uh, not too much longer, and so God was rescuing her. Uh, Corey goes on to be a famous writer, and she shares about her horrendous journey and the power of forgiveness. And she has many quotes, if you ever uh, Google her name, there's many amazing quotes that she has, but one of them that I appreciate most Is she says this? She says, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. You see, Corey did not know a lot of things about her future. She did not know if her sister would pass away. She didn't know if she would pass away. She didn't know if her parents would pass away. She didn't know how long she would live. She didn't know if the war would ever end. She didn't know if Nazi Germany would be conquered in her lifetime. She didn't know a lot of things, but she did know this one thing. She knew that in the end, God would win and his kingdom would reign forever. And so in the midst of this hardship, in the midst of this horror of a concentration camp, she could place her hope in a God who controls all things, who knows all things, and who will conquer all things. Friends, as we consider the future, the reality is we don't know much about the future. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow We don't know what's going to happen next year. We can make plans, but we don't know for sure. Some of you don't even know where you're eating lunch today. We don't know much about the future. But what we do know is the future of eternity. And we know, more importantly, who holds that future, who holds eternity. He is the one who is establishing his kingdom, who is bringing the rock so that we will be in a kingdom that is holy and happy forever and for always. This was the hope of Daniel. This is our hope today, and it should lead us to praise God who has secured our future. We don't know everything about the future, but we do know the best things about the future because God has told us in his word. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much that in the midst of not knowing a lot of things about what today will hold or tomorrow, in the midst of, of living in political turmoil and, and seeing countries rise and fall and leaders rise and fall and just all of the chaos, God, we can know this, that there is a kingdom that has been established by Christ that will come in full when he returns, a kingdom that is for our joy, for our salvation, that will be our forever home, God. Help us to look forward to that kingdom with great joy and great hope, even in the midst of a tumultuous world, Lord. Help us set our rest on what you have told us our future will be in Christ. and We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.